Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you, whether you're using a printed copy as I prefer or use an app on your device, find the book of Jeremiah, and I want you to find the 17th chapter as I worship backstage and listen to you sing about Jesus being all that we need and our portion. It is so good to know that we come to a point in our service where we want to hear from the Lord. In order to do that, we dare not trust a human being to deliver the Word of God. God's already delivered His Word through the inspiration of His Spirit. Rather, we have the opportunity as pastor and congregation to take what He has already delivered and to explain it and unpack it into our lives. That is certainly a privilege that I want to share with you this morning. If you are a guest of ours, we've been in a sermon series called Reworked for two weeks. This is the second week. It, it lies within a larger journey through the book of Jeremiah. You heard Jeff reference that in the welcome. And we've been in Jeremiah now for the better part of a year, and we find ourselves in the 17th chapter this morning. Now, the series title, Reworked, literally comes out of the next few chapters. In fact, at one point, Jeremiah is told to go to the potter's house, go to a person who made pottery, who took clay and water and formed uh, shapes and vessels and tools for the kitchen and for everyday use, jars and containers. And this is what the Bible says in chapter 18, verse 4, it's on the screen, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Therein lies our idea, reworked. Now, this is a famous picture that many people associate with Jeremiah because it is how the Lord was communicating to Jeremiah what he was doing. If you've been on this journey with me, you know that the book of Jeremiah is a book where God is delivering through the prophet divine judgment. God is tired of Judah's idolatry. That by this point, the nation of Israel had divided into two kingdoms, and the north kingdom had already fallen. It was called Israel. The southern kingdom called Judah is going to fall in Jeremiah's lifetime. In fact, in 586 B.C., the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar marches on Jerusalem and completely and totally destroys it. Jeremiah gets this assignment. He has to go tell the people that their time to repent is up and that judgment is coming. Yet as we've seen through this journey, all throughout this deliverance of divine judgment is God still calling human hearts back to himself. And Jeremiah chapter 17 may be one of the more refreshing chapters I've come to. I enjoyed studying it this week because of what I get to share with you. It really speaks directly to where we are, or at least where we think we are as a nation. Have you ever noticed how two-sided we've become? The idea of amiable conversation politically and socially seems to have completely evaded us. We now find ourselves, whether it's on news outlets or social media platforms, screaming our perspectives at a person in opposition. Now, you don't need a preacher or someone who studies a social culture to tell you that we are a nation that is polarized or divided. Unfortunately, what happens though is when issues divide us, we then quickly want to know what camp are you in and are you on my side or are you not on my side? Just think about all the choices and all the camps that exist. Are you a conservative or a liberal? Are you Biden or Trump? 
Are you pro-wall or pro-immigration? Are you for standing or kneeling? Are you for defunding the police or supporting the police? Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Are you pro-LBGTQ+, or are you more someone who aligns themselves with traditional biblical values? Are you for trans athletes competing where they choose or not? Are you for herd immunity or social distancing? Are you pro-mask or no mask? Are you for the vaccine or are you skeptical? Are you for more stimulus? Send me another check, especially since it's based on the number of children in your house. I done fared well. Thank you. Are you for balancing a budget knowing they're going to eventually get it back? Or are you someone who is for opening schools completely? Or are you for virtual learning? More gun control or less? Now, these are, there's no research in this. I just brainstormed what I see every day in the news. And it is as if on all those issues, there's only two sides, and you pick one. Now, some issues are more black and white than others, but all of them are complex when you deal with a nation as large as ours. What if I told you, though, that there really are two ways to live? There are really only two ways to think, and there are really only two ways to view the world. I'm not going to take every one of those issues and attempt to address them. We've done some of that through our e-disciple journey. But rather this morning, directly from Jeremiah chapter 17, I want to show you that in a world of complexity, it really boils down to how you think and live and the way in which you view. There are only two ways. If you'll allow me to play on words, I would say this is too important. It's too important. Now, what I mean is that really and truly, according to the wisdom of Jeremiah, there are two lives and two truths. Now, the chapter that we're in, chapter 17, actually begins with Jeremiah once again recounting just how sinful Judah had become. Look what he says in verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of the heart. When you engrave something, when you write it in steel, metal, remember the Ten Commandments? God didn't write it on paper. He wrote it on a stone. When you do that, you're saying it's permanent, not to be moved. And so God, through the inspiration of the Spirit, inspired Jeremiah to say, this is how deep the sin runs in Judah. Look what the Bible says beginning in verse 2. While their children remember their altars and their asherim, that's an idol to a false god, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places, for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen, verse 4, your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. We've heard this before. We're 17 chapters in. God is upset with Judah's idolatry. They have abandoned him, the one true living God, and judgment is coming. So much so that if you were to skip down with me a little bit out of order sequence, sequentially, look at verse 14. Jeremiah begins to pray for his own deliverance. He's so overwhelmed with the destruction and the sinfulness and the deaf ear that's being turned to his preaching. He prays these words, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come. 
I have not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Jeremiah said, I've been faithful. Even when they doubt your message, Lord, I've been telling them the truth. Verse 17, be not terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of disaster. Destroy them with double destruction. Jeremiah is filled with the emotion of being fed up with preaching to people who won't listen. So we begin with this indictment. This section ends with this prayer. But it's right in the middle that is the jewel for today. It's right in the middle where God, through his wisdom, gives Jeremiah one of the most beautiful pieces of counsel in all of God's word. And God lays it out. He says, when you boil it all down, when you work through the mire of complexity, there are really two lives and two truths. And I want to ask you today, as I walk you through this, which life do you have? Which life are you living? And what truths are you basing your life upon? Let me give you the two lives first. First, there's the cursed life. Look what verse 5 says. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. First, Jeremiah says, under the inspiration of God, God speaking through Jeremiah, here's the cursed life. Now, you may think, oh, curse. Well, you're cursed if you do this, if you do that. If you're involved in this type of rebellion or this heinous sin or this wicked worship. Okay, there are behaviors that are indicative of people whose lives are not right with God. But that's not what the text says. The text says the root of the cursed life is that a human being who stands cursed is putting their trust in themselves or other people. And by trusting in man, by default, you turn away from trusting in God. Remember all those contrast I put on the screen a few moments ago, all those points of polarization, if you will. When you get down to the root of it, what you find, the senseless decision-making, thinking, and behavior we're continuing to see increase goes back to people believing that humans can solve the human problem. But the human problem is deeper than any system, any economic disparagement. Any injustice, the human problem runs far deeper than this government or that government, this fund or that fund, this cause or that cause. The human problem deals at the issue of trust. Now, now to drop this in the context of Jeremiah, what had happened in Jeremiah's day is that after Josiah, a good king, had brought some reforms, his predecessors, or rather his successors, came into power, and they were wicked. And in trying to deal with the Babylonian threat, they decided, well, we'll just make an alliance with Egypt. Have you seen people put their faith in political strategy? I don't know. Sounds familiar to me. They said, we'll just make an alliance with Egypt. Instead of repenting of the sin of idolatry, 
instead of dealing with their own hearts, instead of dealing with their own sin, they said, well, we'll line up with this country so that they'll protect us from that country. Do you know what Isaiah had to say about that? I love what Isaiah said. He said, the Egyptians are men. They're people and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. They might move in, but it's just flesh and blood. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Isaiah and Jeremiah kept beating the same drum. My problem and your problem starts in our life when we make the choice, in whom shall we trust? And the call of the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is to trust the Lord God. Now, something interesting happens in this text. Look with me in verse 6. Not only do we see what the cursed life does, we see what the cursed life is like. It's like a shrub in the desert. Now, look what he says. He is like a shrub in the desert. Who is he? A person who trusts in mankind. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. That's fruit. No fruit will come. He shall dwell in the parched land, the places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. If you drive to Lowe's today, their garden department has overflowed into the parking lot. Some of you have bought potting soil in the last two weeks. You're buying plants that you'll take to your house and torture and kill. Every year, I buy the same six hanging ferns. And every year, about August, I take all six of them to the dump. I don't plant a garden because every time I've ever tried to plant a garden, it looks like Jurassic Park by the 4th of July. I like church members who plant gardens. And when the Lord blesses your tomatoes and they overflow, call me. We will come and we will help you with your issue. All of us know, though, our lives thankfully don't depend on our gardens. Our grandparents and great-grandparents would speak otherwise. But whether or not you enjoy gardening or having a beautiful lawn, You know as well as I do, your children will survive with or without your garden because you have at your fingertips access to all kinds of produce and groceries available. In the ancient world, it was not so. You are not far removed from the land. And in an agricultural environment, they understood the life of plants meant the life of people. So often in the scriptures to explain spirituality, they would go back to something as simple and as elementary as the life of a plant. And this is what God says. A cursed life is a woman in this room, a man in this room, who decides you're going to trust your own heart or trust other people, that you're going to find your identity and your hope and your purpose in humanity. And when you do, you're going to be unfed and unfruitful. Ultimately, that's the picture. The picture is a shrub in the wilderness whose roots have nothing more to bury into but sand and salt, and there is no fruit coming from the plant. This is the most unhealthy picture of a living plant, a plant that will soon die but will hang on for dear life. And by the way, you may say, well, Pastor, are you, 
Are you preaching about people that don't know Christ? Because without Christ, we're dead in our sins. And so are you saying that people without a relationship with Christ, people who don't trust Jesus, people who are not saved, people who have not been born again, you can use all the similes you want or synonyms you want, rather. You, you can use all those. Are you talking about those people? Well, yes. But also, you can be a Christian and run dry. You can be a Christian and dry up spiritually. And when you do, you'll begin to diagnose and say, well, what happened? How did I dry up spiritually? Well, you can point to some behaviors, and that's true. If you stray from God's will, if you disobey the Lord, if you mistreat people, if you're angry, if you're filled with anger and bitterness, if you um, privately are harboring uh, cynicism or lust, if you're lazy, if you're not in the Word, th then these are indicative of a man or a woman who is dry spiritually. But it's not the root. The root is that at some point you start trusting you and stop trusting God. Because when you place your trust in you, you start hustling to make life work. You start trying to control and protect. And therefore, you're overcome with fear because you realize how much you don't control and how little you can affect. But when you trust the Lord, things begin to change. In fact, the writer of Proverbs says it this way. He says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom, and of course Proverbs is talking about the wisdom of God, will be delivered. So the cursed life is a life of a man or a woman who trusts in humanity, in their own heart or the heart of others. But then... It's like the light switch comes on in the passage. We see the blessed life. Remember I told you there are only two lives. What's the difference? Well, look what the Bible says beginning in verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Now, it's almost like he repeats himself, second phrase, verse 7. Whose trust is in the Lord. It's a little bit of a different derivative in the Hebrew. You could read it this way. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose confidence is in the Lord. So this man trusts the Lord. Now, what's he look like? We know what he does. He trusts the Lord. This woman trusts the Lord. Look at the different metaphor. Look what the Bible says in verse 8. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for, it le for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought. Notice, watch this now. The blessed life is not the life absent of drought. The blessed life is not the life absent of the heat of this world. The blessed life is not immune from struggle and heartbreak. The blessed life is so deeply rooted in the trust of God that when the rains of the world stop, she still has green leaves because she's not drawing from what we see. She's drawing from what's beneath her. I love this, and this is almost verbatim Psalm 1, where the psalmist says, he is like a tree planted by living water. Look what else it says, beginning in the second phrase of verse 8. And it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What's this look like? 
healthy root and healthy fruit. So you can't have one without the other. And you won't have one without the other. If you don't root yourself in the trust of the immovable good God of heaven and his son Jesus, you won't ever bear spiritual fruit. You can do religious things. You can be a good old boy. Hell's full of them. You can be a nice lady. But true spiritual fruit comes from a true spiritual root. And the root is tied to God through the vehicle of trust. What did Jesus say? Been quoting Jeremiah. Let me quote Jesus. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And then Jesus adds, for apart from me, you can do nothing. One of the common expressions of spiritual struggle is what I'm not doing for the Lord or what he's not doing for me. Before we focus on the level of activity and behavior, we need to drop back and ask the question. Activity is informed by identity. What I do is nothing more than the outward manifestation of who I am. And who I am is rooted in my trust of God or trust of myself. So what are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? We've dealt with a year of fear. In fact, all those Contrast, I gave you a few moments ago, people are afraid on both sides. People are afraid of a vaccine. Others are afraid of not getting it. Some are afraid of the current political leadership. Others were afraid of the previous. Some are afraid of gun violence. and Others are afraid of more gun control. Some are afraid and fearful of continued racial tensions and disunity and others are afraid that the narrative is actually driving the distrust and the anger. It goes on and on and on again. And again, I'm not saying that we're immune from feeling all those things. What I'm saying is this, don't let the world control how you view the world. Let the God of the world control how you view the world. And that begins with you saying, before I attempt to understand the world, I want to understand the God of the world. I trust him. And because I trust him, he becomes my root. And when he becomes my root, then his attributes become my fruit. So when I'm cast into a tense situation, when I'm faced with a struggle, when I'm trying to discern some complex issue, I want to bear spiritual fruit in it because I'm not taking my cues from your side or my side or his side or her side. I take my cues from the eternal God who has said, trust me. And that's the difference between the cursed life and the blessed life. Now, that's really built on two truths. And I want to give you those. What are the two truths? The first one may seem somewhat of a downer. 
I don't want to ever be a downer, but I promise you I'll always be honest with you. The first truth is built around the depravity of man. Now look at verse 9. I want to show you what I mean. No sooner has Jeremiah said there's a blessed life and a cursed life. Look at verse 9. The heart, now he's not talking about the heart of God. He's talking about the human heart. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And then he throws his hands up. Who can understand it? Now, before you get fearful, old pastor's about to scratch out a spot and just condemn us all to hell right here. Let, let, let me explain what I mean. Doctrine matters. You need to know what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches in the doctrine of man the total depravity of the human heart. Now, now this is foreign to most people. In fact, most people's working theology, even people who profess to be Christians, is, well, you know what? For the most part, people are really good. It's the systems they're in. It's the culture they're born into. It's the environment that corrupts them. Now, listen. Environment and influence matter. The Bible has a lot to say about that. The Bible speaks of who you keep company with. The Bible absolutely shows us over and over and over again that when you hang around sin, you're going to end up in it. When you associate with wickedness, you'll be drawn into it. I am not in any way trying to undermine the teaching of Scripture, which does clearly show there's a relationship between the amount of rebellion you can get involved in and sin you can participate in and the environment you put yourself in. And from a parenting standpoint, from a guiding the next generation standpoint, this is why parents care about the environment they put their children in. This is why it matters that you do everything you can to present before your children a home that honors the Lord. This is why it matters that our church be salt and light in a dark world. I get that, but listen to me. The root of all our problems is not from without, it's from within. It comes from the total depravity of the human heart. This is where the world misses it. Now, I have never failed to celebrate my love of country music. I like country music. If you were to look on my iTunes account, you would see all kinds of music. I mean, I got all kinds of music. I like bluegrass. I like R&B. I have some classical music. I enjoy soft piano music when I'm trying to go to sleep at two in the afternoon. I, I, I like all kinds of music. But if you get dumped by your girlfriend, you need some George Strait. You just do. I was thinking about this wrong view of the condition of the human heart, and it occurred to me that a few years ago, an artist who pretends to be country, Luke Bryan, um, <laughs> came out with a song, most people are good. Listen to the verse in the chorus. I believe most people are good, and most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. Well, we're, biblically speaking, once you're saved, you are a saint. I believe most Friday nights look better under neon or stadium lights. I believe you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of. Again, you know what he's saying there, what he's supporting. I believe this world ain't half as bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. Then he adds a verse that I think is interesting. It's rather theological. Incorrect, but theological. I believe them streets of gold are worth the work, but I still want to go even if they were paved in dirt. Well, they're not paved in dirt, and you can't work to get there. 
I believe that youth is spent well on the young because wisdom in your teens would be a lot less fun. I believe if you just go by the nightly news, your faith in all mankind will be the first thing you lose. I believe most people are good. Now, I understand we could take every secular song and we could pick it apart, and that's not the point. The point is, I think Luke Bryan in this song captures an incorrect view that many Christians have, that we believe because we're made in the image of God, we're naturally good, and it is the world that corrupts us. Why is it important that I help you see that's not what the Bible teaches? Because the sweetness of salvation takes on a whole nother level when you recognize the depth of depravity we were saved from. Listen to what Isaiah says, Jeremiah's prophet contemporary. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. You say, well, that's Old Testament, Pastor, what Paul said, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, Jeremiah says in verse 9, the heart is deceitful. There's a powerful word study, this word deceit. It keeps coming up over and over again in Scripture. In Hosea, it's translated stained. It's called rough ground in Isaiah. It's the root word from which the word heal comes from. You know how the Bible says Satan in the form of a serpent struck the heel of man? This is out of the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 specifically. The reason that the Hebrew word for deceit and the Hebrew word for heal come from the same word is because if you and I are walking along and I decide cruelly to trip you, I'm not going to thump you in the ear. I'm not going to run my knuckle in the side of your bicep. No, no, no. If I want to trip you, I'm going to come beside you and I'm going to swipe your heel. And if I can trip your heel up, you'll be tripped up and you'll be unstable. This is the word. To be tripped up physically is the same as being mentally deceived and tricked. Jacob's name comes from this word and he was the heel grabber who grabbed Esau as they came out of the womb of their mother, the second born twin who stole the birthright. And then of course Jesus said, when Satan Satan speaks his native language, he's lying. In fact, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. This word deceit. And you may say, well, how is this true of us? Really? Do I have to tell you? I'll just use me. Right in this chest is a heart that is absolutely capable of loving people. I can be servant-hearted. I can be kind. I can be compassionate. If I work hard, sometimes I can even be patient. But I'm going to tell you right here, is a lustful man, a man that can get angry, a man that can lose his cool, a man that can become bitter, a man that could want to grab people by the nap of the, nap of the neck and say, stop being an idiot, grow up. A man who quickly thinks about himself and has to work to think about others. And I'm not beating myself up because you're that man, you're that woman. Jesus probably said it best. You know what Jesus said about the human heart? Mark chapter 7. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's a pretty good list. All these evil things come from, where do they come from? Within, and they defile a person. Now drop that on your news app. Everybody on your news app is screaming about changing systems, processes, governments, policies, medicines, precautions, reconciliations, 
Nothing wrong with human energy toward those ends, but none of them fix the root problem. The root problem is the wickedness of the human heart. Now, before you think I came today to beat you down, let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus did not come to buff off your rough edges. Jesus didn't come to make you drink a few less beers. Jesus didn't come so you don't drop as many four-letter words when things go wrong. He came and died for your wicked, depraved heart to give you a brand new one. Jesus said, unless you be born again, unless I make you new, but when I make you new, the old is gone and the new has come. The flesh is still got power and there is still a struggle, but he gives a new heart. One commentator said, a radical internal surgery is the only thing that will save humanity. So before you think our job is to fix the world with the world's solution, remember as a Christian, we speak of the gospel where God changes people from the inside out. And this is why not losing our understanding of the depravity of our hearts is important because it makes the gift of salvation even sweeter. It's not as if God looked down and said, you know, they're fairly good. Let me tweak here and twist there and I'll put a little makeup on this and trim off a few pounds here and dash this with a coat of paint. No, no, no. He looked down at dead men and women spiritual cadavers, and he said through Christ, get up and live again. And by the way, when you really appreciate this, then all those behaviors you think you need to change to get saved, no, they change because you've been saved. They change because you feel that new heart. They change because you're not as afraid as you used to be. They change because all of a sudden, I don't have to trust man. I don't have to trust my house. I don't have to trust the White House. I don't have to trust your house. I don't have to trust this race or that race. I don't have to trust this solution or that solution. I don't have to trust this economic policy or that one. If there's two people on the Supreme Court or 32, my king still lives. I don't have to trust in the world's struggle. I trust in the Lord, which leads to that final truth, and then we're going to go eat lunch. The total depravity of man and the discernment of God. Look what happens in verse 10. I'll close with this. Jeremiah gives the pen up to the Lord. The Lord says, let me write this one. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood, she did not hatch. You ever seen little chicks follow their mother? Baby animals follow, they know which one's their mother. He paints a picture of a partridge trying to gather chicks she did not hatch. They get three or four up and one will run away. Go chase that one and these two will run away. You want to see this reenacted? Go to Pizza Inn in just a minute. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart and their hiss the mind. Verse 11, like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. 
In the midst of his days, they will leave him, and at his end, he will be a fool. Now contrast that to verse 12. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Grab that, underlined it, put a phrase. Listen to me. You want your name written in heaven, not on earth. The Bible teaches that God will make a new heaven and a new earth. Do you know what that means? He's going to destroy the old one. The only two things that make the new heaven and the new earth are the redeemed of God and the word of God. These shall never pass away. People hustle and bustle to get their names on buildings, roadmaps, policies, laws, and all the while working to write it in the dust that will blow away. But the Bible says when you're saved, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And that book can never be erased. Jeremiah says, and I close, For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of the living water. I won't begin to tell you that all the issues we're facing have simple solutions. Some of them are simpler than others. And I can't tell you it's going to get better. I wouldn't be being honest with you. In fact, the Bible does not indicate that. The Bible indicates that as we continue to progress, more and more and more people will become aggressively in opposition to the things of God. This is one of the reasons why I've never been more excited to be alive than today. Our gospel is looking more and more different than it ever has. I think God is waking up the American church, purging her, and people are having to decide Am I going to trust in man or am I going to trust in God? And so I would leave you with this. Wherever you trust, to whomever you put your trust in, your trust determines the life you live. If your trust is in that young woman you're dating, the minute that relationship ends or becomes sinful, your heart will be wrecked. If your trust is in the security of the man you married, I promise you, I believe that God can give him the strength to be a faithful and good husband, but he will fail you. You cannot put your trust in him. If your trust is in that identity and that career you built, if you worked hard to overcome barriers and punch through glass ceilings and you have acquired for yourself a measure of wealth to create a comfortable and enjoyable life for your family, you are one Wall Street decision away from seeing it disappear like dust in the wind. If your trust is in your wealth, I promise you, it will leave you. If your trust is in your church or your pastor, you're running a risk I would not encourage. While I do believe it matters that we trust our leaders and that we hold them accountable, your trust can never be in a bride. Your trust is in the bridegroom. Your trust can never be in a spiritual leader on a platform. It has to be in the one he preaches about. Think about how life works. If your bank account goes down, your blood pressure goes up. If you acquire wealth here, you lose it over there. If it's not your enemies, it's your friends. And before you know it, you scurry and work, and there's tension and anxiety. And all the while, what did David say? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Think about how the world is driven by want. Trust 
the Lord. There are two lives. Choose wisely. Let's pray.